We turn tonight in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to read the first 11 verses of this chapter, known as the resurrection chapter, I guess. 1 Corinthians 13 we looked at before, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted in large measure to the resurrection of Christ and of his people. We're considering tonight in the Canons of Dort an article entitled, Responses to God's Grace, Article 15. The question is, do the doctrines of grace produce pride? And the answer is no, but humility. And we see that witnessed by the Apostle Paul in the last verses that we'll read tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, verses 1 through 11, the word of the Lord. Let's give our attention. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. God's holy word. Let's turn in the Forms and Prayers book to the Canons of Dort, Article 15 of the Third and Fourth Headed Doctrine. That would be page 274, page 274 in the Canons of Dort. We often remember the five points here under the acronym of TULIP, but you remember the, the actual order of the canons is OLTIP, beginning with unconditional election, then limited atonement, and in this third and fourth combined chapter, dealing with total depravity and irresistible grace. And so we've just heard that the Lord God sovereignly saves us. Regeneration or the new birth is a supernatural work from above. It's God's work. And now... We come to Article 15, Responses to God's Grace, on page 274. And we confess there, God does not owe this grace to anyone. For what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? Therefore, the person who receives this grace owes and gives eternal thanks to God alone. The person who does not receive it either does not care at all about these spiritual things and is satisfied with himself in his condition, or else in self-assurance foolishly boasts about having something which he lacks. 
Furthermore, following the example of the apostles, we are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives. For the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us, But for others who have not yet been called, we are to pray to the God who calls things that do not exist as though they did. In no way, however, are we to pride ourselves as better than they, or though we had distinguished ourselves from them. Let's ask the Lord for his help tonight. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your unmerited favor through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us how to respond rightly to your grace and to recognize your grace in us. We thank you, O Lord, for your continued work upon us, that you don't grow weary in well-doing, and that our sin does not exhaust the patience and perseverance of your Spirit. We pray that he'd minister to us tonight through the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been studying for several weeks the truth that God saves sinners. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We've seen that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in His sight, the doctrine of unconditional election, and that we've seen that the Son came in human nature to die our death, to atone or cover over our sins. And so we speak of particular redemption or a limited atonement. He died for the elect. And now we're in this third and fourth chapter dealing with the work of the Spirit, that he comes to those who are dead in sin, who have no spiritual life, whose mind is darkened, whose will is enslaved to sin, and he performs a glorious miracle of regeneration, of breathing life into the dead soul, of enlightening the mind, of, of, of renewing the will, of giving to us the gift of faith so that we, all of God's grace, receive Christ Jesus. Pride has no place. It's all of the Lord. But what if somebody said to you that these very doctrines we believe are proud doctrines? For for you to say that God chooses some and not others, and you think you're among the elect, that's a proud doctrine. For you to say that God sovereignly calls some by his spirit into his fellowship, but doesn't call others, and you're among this group, you think that's a proud thought. What would you say if if people say it's not only proud before God, but it makes you arrogant towards other people? Because you have these doctrines, you divide people up in your mind as to who's elect and not elect, and you're skeptical of everyone else. What would you say to that? Well, Article 15 seems to be responding to those kind of charges. Here we're reminded tonight that it's those who believe in sovereign grace that have more reason than anyone else. To say no, humility. To know humility, to live out humility. Tonight we want to notice that grace, sovereign grace, these doctrines of grace, humble us before God, number one, and they humble us before other people, number two. So let's think about that. First of all, it humbles us before God. Now we acknowledge that we are by nature proud and self-sufficient and thankless, but as grace comes into our life, it changes us. And it shows us our sin, our unworthiness, and the wonders of what God has done for us in Christ. And so we see now through the scriptures reasons to give thanks. It's not a teaching that says man does nothing that accounts for pride, but it's, it's works righteousness that leads to pride. 
But it's even any doctrine that gives man part of the credit. And so even the doctrine that some teach that, that, that it's man's free will that made the definitive distinguishing that God does the same thing for everyone. He maybe gives some measure of spirit to everybody. But if you ask in the end, why does one believe and one not believe? The answer is found that the believing one found it within himself. He made the decision that made the difference. But you see, if you, if you believe that the distinguishing factor between the believer and the unbeliever is man, well, then who, who gets the praise? Well, man gets at least part of it. But we confessed back in Article 14, just before this Article 15, that In this way, faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that faith is offered by God for man to choose, but that it is an actual fact bestowed on man, breathed and infused into him. Faith is not a gift in the sense that that God holds up the potential to believe and that he awaits for man to see how man will respond to that gift of faith, but it's actually breathed into him. God does everything. To cause us to believe. And so there's nothing to boast in of ourselves. And the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's, he's arguing for the resurrection, he, he in the midst of it makes a, a glorious revelation here by the Spirit of God to us. He teaches us what, what grace should do. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not just the Apostle Paul that should say that, but every believer. By the grace of God. By the grace of God. That's all. Everything I am is by his grace. The Apostle Paul reveals that he feels utterly unworthy to to bear this title of apostle. He's going through all the resurrection appearances of Jesus to the apostles and to the 500 and so forth. And he says, finally to me, right? It was sometime later after Christ's Resurrection is actually after Christ's ascension into heaven sometime later that the resurrected and glorified Jesus appeared to the, to the persecutor named Saul. And Saul remembers that. Paul's humbled by that. He gives all the credit to God. But it wasn't always that way in his life, was it? Because before he met the Lord of grace, Saul was quite conceited, and, and he trusted in his own works and his own credentials. You remember that famous passage, Philippians 3, where he says, you want to boast in, in what we do, I can outboast all of you. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, concerning the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. But then, on the road to Damascus, the Lord of glory and grace arrested him, didn't he? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul came to see that that his own works were worthless, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is everything. In fact, the very thing he had counted as part of his, his pride and his badge, that he was more zealous to persecute the church These heretics, than any other person perhaps, now becomes so horrible in his eyes. It was a horrible crime what he did to Christians. And now the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he he still feels the weight of this. I'm a man rescued by grace. I totally don't deserve to be saved, much less to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
For I'm the least of the apostles, whom not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, he's not suggesting that anybody has a right to disregard his ministry. Very opposite. He is commissioned by Christ. He's authorized by Christ. And you must hear and receive the testimony he brings. But he's aware that he himself doesn't deserve this position. He's also aware, as we learn in 1 Timothy 1, that that the very thing the Lord did in choosing to save a persecutor of the church was to be to the benefit of sinners by lifting up a man whose whose wickedness was, was overt and was open and was directly hostile to Christ and his church by plucking him and saving him so to hold up an example to all. Remember he says in 1 Timothy 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me, put me in the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Then he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so God took this, this fierce persecutor of Christ and he saved him to say this is what salvation is. It's all of grace. Surely not that Saul sought Jesus. It's surely not that, that Saul prepared his heart to believe on Jesus. He hated Jesus of Nazareth and he hated Jesus' people. But the Lord saved him. Where would you be tonight if the Lord had not taken hold of your heart? You ever think about that? You look at your life and you think, what? What would I be? Where would I be? I'd be living in adultery or fornication. Would I be chasing after money? Would I be imprisoned? Would I be long dead? Would I be an arrogant, boastful person people couldn't stand to be around? Or would I just be a good old self-righteous Pharisee talking about how moral I am and how corrupt everyone else in the country is? Where would I be if the grace of the Lord had had not intervened? What the Lord did for Saul is the thing he does for all of us. Sometimes we think if we're born in a Christian home, our hearts somehow were less corrupted and it was easier for Christ to save us, but it's not the case. For everyone, it's a miracle of regeneration, sovereign grace that Jesus calls out of the tomb our dead hearts. And so we are to give God thanks. We are to give God thanks. God does not owe this grace to anyone. For what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? Think back to Adam in the garden. What if Adam, you know, after God created him, he, he, he comes to God at the end of the day with, with fruit from the trees. He says, here, God, I give to you, you owe to me. God would say, actually, I made that fruit. I'm the creator. Or, or what if Adam came at the end of a long work day and said, here it is, God, look at, look at my labors. Look at all I've done. And God would say, well, Adam, I gave you the strength and I gave you the privilege to serve me. And all you can say is you're an unworthy servant has only done your duty. But what about after the fall into sin? When now all that Adam can bring to God are rotten fruits. His own sin, his own lies. Can he say, here, God, you owe me? 
Of course not. God owes us nothing. Our calling is to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, Psalm 107. Our life for the Lord is not an evening out of the books. We're not paying God back. We're not reimbursing him for what he's done. We're to humbly acknowledge that it's all of grace. It's all of his mercy. We owe eternal thanks to God. And also the the canon is saying not just that we owe this eternal thanks to God, but it says that we give eternal thanks to God. We are so changed by God's grace that this is the desire of our lives to thank the Lord. And, And we will do this for eternity. It will be our delight to thank the Lord, to praise the Lord, to give him glory for what he has done. We could spend the rest of our lives thanking God, and we will by God's grace. And we won't out exhaust what the Lord deserves. And so the attitude of gratitude should characterize the life of the believer as the Bible makes clear. We should show ourselves grateful in the way we worship God, the way we pray to God, the way we treat our spouse and children, the way we treat our parents or siblings. People should see in the life of IRC that we're astonished at what God has done for us. This is amazing. We were so unworthy, so unfit. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, that unmerited, undeserved, demerited favor of God. We need to put pride to death and thank the Lord. Now, for those who don't thank the Lord, don't receive this grace. The canons go on to say, don't they, that the person who does not receive this grace either does not care at all about these spiritual things and satisfy with himself in his condition, or else, in self-assurance, foolishly boasts about having something which he lacks. There's two kinds of people, aren't there? There's, there's those who are utterly indifferent to spiritual matters. They, they sense no need of grace. They are quite satisfied with who they are. They are indifferent. They are carnal. They are superficial. They are profane. They're like Esau. Just no sense of the gravity and the reality that I need a Savior. Or the rich fool just so content to stockpile his wealth. And you've talked to people like this. Try to tell them about the Lord and they smile, they listen for a minute, and then they go on their way. They have no interest. They think all's fine. But then... As scary as that is, there are others who vainly boast of what they don't have. They may think because I read my Bible or I go to church or I've made a profession that God has to accept me, even though they're walking, not trusting in Jesus, but in their own self-righteousness, kind of legalism. One Cannon's commentary compares this legalism to the story of an explorer who took a crew of men to the Arctic. And having determined their location from the stars, they set out on a journey north by foot. And after walking a long time, they, by the stars, recalculated their location to discover they were further south than when they started because they were walking on an ice flow. That's what legalism is like, all these supposed works with no foundation and grace, all these attempts to 
climb the way up to God are actually just sinking deeper, deeper, further and further away from God. And so we must examine ourselves. These things are revealed, and we confess this here to remind us that we ought not to be self-deceived. We should examine to make sure that our faith is in Christ Jesus, in him and not in ourselves. But in examining ourselves, we, we shouldn't think that, that God wishes to deceive us and that it's God's great pleasure to leave us self-deceived to the last day. So, oh, yeah, I know you thought you're a Christian, but you're not. It's not what God does. If we seek the Lord, we'll find him. The self-deceived one is not the one who prays sincerely, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God doesn't play games with those who pray that to him. He loves to expose our sin to us and to show us our need of Jesus if we just cry out and seek him. He loves to to give the gift of faith. He, He loves to assure us in reality that we are his children. The self-deceived are those who are proud, who will not truly examine their hearts, who will not cry out for the Lord to search them. They go on their merry way boasting what they have. And in that way, they're not truly grateful in Jesus either. They do not give him thanks. Where grace comes, there's humility before God. And we say with the apostle, oh, just by the grace of God, That's all. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And but for the grace of God, I wouldn't care about him. But for the grace of God, I'd be self-righteous. But for the grace of God, I'd be eternally lost. How great is God's favor in Jesus, freely bestowed upon us. But then we see tonight that, that grace not only makes us humble before God, it makes us humble toward others. That's the second point tonight. Grace makes us gracious, right? The grace of God makes us gracious, makes us humble. First of all, it makes us humble towards each other in the church of Jesus Christ. Catechism or canons shows us that within the church we're to judge each other with the judgment of love, with the judgment of charity, not with harshness. Now, it doesn't mean we don't judge at all, right? If we see a brother or sister stumbling in sin, we are to pray for them. We try to encourage them in a righteous way. Or if someone persists in the way of ungodliness, the elders would even have to carry out church discipline. But I think what the canons are speaking about here are our self-righteous propensity to be harsh with the weaknesses of others. Instead of recognizing that even the holiest saints in this life have but a small beginning in the new obedience, as the Catechism says. So the doctrine of election and irresistible grace should not lead us to try to distinguish and think in our minds, oh, he must not be elect, she must not be elect. Oh, no, absolutely not should not make us suspicious and questioning one another. I read a story about a, a man who had infiltrated uh, one of these terroristic Islamic groups. And 
as he was giving out the secrets, the group began to know that there was a spy among them, and so they began at times to pull guns on each other and accuse each other of being the spy. In fact, it happened to him once. Somebody pulled a gun on him and said, I know you're the spy. He was able to stay calm and work his way out of it. But is that what we do in the church of Jesus Christ? We know God said there'll be hypocrites in the church, so we're constantly accusing. No, absolutely not. In the church of Jesus Christ, we love each other and we give the judgment of love. We don't have an x-ray machine to see into the innermost recesses of one another's hearts, and we don't need one, or God would have given it to us. We're to take each other at the word. If someone makes a profession of Christ and walks in a godly way, then we judge them to be a child of God. Hypocrites, true hypocrites who wear a mask, you wouldn't know it anyway. God knows and God will deal with hypocrites. But it's our job. When we see a true profession, when we see somebody seeking to walk in the Lord's way, stumbling though as we do, to judge them a brother or sister in the Lord. And so we're admonished not to be hasty in our judgments and not to be harsh with each other. And we know how it can be that the sin that we think we've mastered, the sin we don't think we struggle with, can be the sin that we focus in on other people. We sometimes do that, don't we? We see so much more quickly the failures of others rather than our own failures. We like to rehearse those in our mind or to say them out loud. And Jesus warned about a log in our own eyes. Now Christ calls us to the same compassion and mercy he showed to us. What would you say of a brother or sister who three times denied Jesus with cursing and swearing? Must not be elect. Jesus restoring Peter not just to be forgiven, but restored to office of apostle. We dare not then go around writing question marks after people's names in the church directory, dealing in a haughty spirit, or even those outside of our congregation with other believers who must be careful. Look at how the apostles, that's what the canon says, look at how the apostles dealt with the churches. Following the example of the apostles, we are to think and speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he's concerned that some may be abandoning the gospel. But at this point in the letter, he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, a congregation that has more issues than you could fit in a semi-trailer. And yet, He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. So we are to speak in favorable ways about those who profess Christ and who seek to follow after him. How else could we be a united people? How else could we be a hope-filled people? We are to show mercy and compassion. We are to deal with each other humbly. And so these doctrines are not to make us a proud people, a haughty people, a suspicious people. They're to make us say with Paul, but, but for the grace of God. 
Now, who would have thought that me who murdered and imprisoned Christians, that I'm loved of God, reconciled to God, I'm a preacher of Christ Jesus. But then also humility with those outside the church. We're not to look at those outside the church, no matter how wicked they are, and to think to ourselves that we made ourselves differ. They're so wicked, they won't believe on Jesus, but I did. I distinguished myself from them. No, we were equally dead in sin and equally worthy of God's wrath. When we see an unbeliever, we are to tell ourselves that he is no worse than I was. And he is no less worthy of God's grace than I am. And we are to pray for them. And canons remind us, as Paul does in Romans 10 verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This for a nation that... He goes on to say, we're seeking to establish their own righteousness. People who boasted in in what they thought they had, rejected the Christ, prays for them. What else could we do but pray to God for them? It's God who, who, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, Romans 4. It's God alone who gives life to the dead. It's God alone who, who regenerates the heart. It's God alone who gives the gift of faith. And so we pray to him humbly. We may not demand that God do anything, but we know that the sovereign God is gracious, and we know that he has willed to use the prayers of his people, so we pray. We pray. We're called to care about our neighbors and to bear witness to Christ to them. We're called to remember as we deal with the world that we love God only because he first loved us. And if we discover in ourselves that we're being rather ungracious, shaking our heads at the young person who messed up our order and thinking kids just don't care anymore these days. I cared in my first job. Why can't they care? If we find ourselves being ungracious, then we need to go back, don't we, and ask, who caused me to care? If there's any good fruit in my life, where did it come from? If I have any faith at all, who gave it to me? The Apostle says in Titus chapter 3, For we ourselves, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Are those the kind of people that make us upset? We were once among them. But when the kindness And love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It would be a very sad thing if we caused anyone to think that the doctrines of sovereign grace led us to pride. It would be the very opposite of what they ought to do. 
if in all these truths that we're studying or announcing, it's all of God. And we bow our heads before the Lord and give him thanks that we deal with each other with a gracious heart and we deal even with the world, with all those who have not yet been called. We deal with them with kindness and mercy because we are no more deserving than the one who's headed to hell. May God give us such hearts. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We are sorry, O Lord, for the pride and conceit and the haughtiness, the judgmentalism, all that does not fit with the doctrine of your wonderful grace in Jesus. Humble us before you, Lord, that we would give you thanks. Humble us before others, that we be gracious toward others as you have been towards us. And grant us that mercy in this week, in Jesus' name, amen. Four hundred twenty-nine. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace.
Let's sing 117b as our doxology, 117b. Lift your hearts to God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his spirit be yours. Amen. Amen.